stand and ask God's blessing upon us, and then we'll read. Now, Father in heaven, we pray for blessing. We, we need you to come and bless us and open our eyes to see and understand. Fill our minds with truth, Lord. Give us the ability to reason and to think godly thoughts, true thoughts, thoughts that are becoming of Christians to think, Lord. Help us get rid of the, the garbage that would keep us uh, from being consistent, Lord, in our reasoning. Now give us a desire and zeal for it, to put it into practice, to make it our own. Lord, that we might as a body be pleasing in your sight, that we might also find great encouragement in, in one another's presence. Lord, help us, Lord, be so mindful of what we learn that we would edify our brethren, we would glorify your name, edify our brethren, Lord, we would grow up in Christ, who is our head. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, James chapter 3, verse 1 and following, James writes, he says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue. It's a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members so that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh water. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Now, brothers and sisters, this morning we are going to, I think, give a lot of attention to verses 1 and 2. Though I'll have to deal with the context I read and some of what we've already looked at, I think it's important, though, for us to spend some time considering what James warns us of in verse 1. James gives the church caution here. You see, there seems to be these moral pitfalls that we are inclined to fall into if we're not careful. 
And when I say moral pitfalls, what I mean by that is we have a tendency to exercise a self-righteousness and clothe it with morality, acceptable morality. And let me explain, I guess, a little further, give you some direction, I guess, some light, some clarity. If we go back to chapter 1, that is, if we were to take and, and look at what we've already learned in James, we could see several uh, pitfalls James could be teaching us to avoid. And we need to know this. For example, it could be a moral pitfall. That is, if we're going and fa- if we're facing a trial, if we're in the midst of a trial, we could convince ourselves that we are being uh, tested by God. We are His child. And we sort of wear that suffering like a medallion, like a, a ribbon. Woe is me, I'm a child of God, I'm suffering in God's name. And, and view that as by itself something we take great pride in, which is the danger, right? We take pride in the testing, but that's not what James says. It's not the testing itself we are to take pride in. It's to what? It's the cultivation of the graces that come along with our faith. That is, if we're not maturing in faith, but due to the trial, if we're not growing, if we don't have a mindset to, to grow our faith, to strengthen our faith, if we don't have the mindset to see love in our life increase, to see grace increase, to see compassion increase, meekness, mildness, humility increase, if we're not allowing, as James says, let the trial have its way so that you might be what? That mature and perfect person. See, he's already mentioned that again in verse, in chapter 3. We just read it. See, we are not to fall into that, that pit Oh, I'm being tested. I'm a Christian. No, James says, no, look. Look at what it produces. What does the trial produce? Bitterness? Laziness? Give up. Why do I keep on? Nobody else cares. Why do I care? Nobody else. What what does the trial produce? Now, I'm not going to hang out there, but I, I think you get the picture. It's a moral pitfall to fall in. We are being tested and tried. We must really be spiritual. And all the while, we don't see the, 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 the infection of pride. So the question is, has the trial produced tenderness? Faith, has it increased it? Has it strengthened your faith or has it lessened it? All right, let's look at another one. What about prayer? What about the pitfall of prayer? Now you think, help me, Pastor. Well, how many of us pray mindlessly? You say, but I pray, Pastor. And you, you said, Pastor, you, I've heard you say many times from the pulpit that I need to pray. That if I'm a Christian, I want to talk to God. But listen, how many of us in this room are not offended by when 
people talk to us, but they're not engaging us. It's really, it's, I mean, you know, mindless, mindless speaking. Did not James in chapter 3 deals with the tongue? But no, he says, no, when we pray and we ask God for wisdom, we must believe. Not to be double-minded. We must actually believe in what we're asking for, that God will answer that prayer. And also, it is what we truly want. When we pray and ask God for wisdom, do you want wisdom? Do you really want God to give you direction? Are you just saying that? See, that's, a, that's, again, is this pitfall we can fall into. We can pray mindlessly, believe it or not. We can pray uh, saying the things that we need to say. But I want to ask you something. Have you fallen into the moral, this moral pit, this danger of pride, priding yourself in prayer, but not really meaning what you pray. You pray and ask for wisdom. You should begin to look at the word of God for wisdom. Seek out counsel to wise people. He who walks with the wise becomes wise. If we ask God for wisdom and we go our merry way, did we mean it? There's another pitfall James deals with in the later chapter, and he talks about the one who is very studious when it comes to the Word of God. He's very orthodox, which means he's very true, accurate in the Scriptures. But when he looks into the Word of God, and he studies it, he knows what it says, but he, he or she walks away and never puts what they learn into practice. That, again, is a moral pitfall because, why? Wow, we can take great pride in our Bible knowledge. We can pride ourselves in the how many times the session or my pastor has taken this church through the catechisms, which we haven't done in a long time. We can pride ourselves in our doctrinal studies, the doctrinal preaching that comes from the pulpit. But the question is, and it's, again, it's, it's this pitfall. It's so easy to fall into, right? Because we know the Word of God. And yet that pride sneaks in there again. And we take great pride in knowing the Word of God. And guess what? You should know the Word of God. All of these things are so subtle. We should know the Word of God. But we should know the Word of God and the sister of application. We should know the Word of God and the sister of application. That's a pitfall. That's something that we can fall into and, and somehow be consumed and, and easily forget um, where we really are and truly are. And James deals with that. And he talks about true religion in God's sight is the visitation of orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself unstained from the world. And then he goes on, he talks about another caution and pitfall, and that is that of favoritism. I think it's important to realize that we are all subject to favoritism, particularly when we are in need. Now, I don't think this is in any way speaking of a worship service. I think it's speaking of a court. 
and the danger of showing favoritism to a party or person that can in some way or another aid us in our distress. Hmm. That's a sort of a bribe. I help you, you help me. And maybe sometimes it's subtle, isn't it? We're willing to turn and twist the rules or the laws or bend them or, not, or ignore them because of who that person or group is. We've got to be careful. That these are moral pitfalls that we can stumble and fall into if we're not careful. And James is bringing this to our attention. And now he begins to address this, this attitude of preeminence in verse 1. It's the attitude of preeminence. And I think the first thing that we need to look at this morning is the differences, the the different kind of preeminence that exists. And I kind of, for the sake of our own understanding, label the two formal and informal. There is a formal preeminence that James may be addressing here when he says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we, notice that pronoun, we will incur a stricter judgment. James could easily be saying, listen, I'm a teacher. You need to be careful about an attitude of preeminence, uh, uh, an attitude of wanting to teach and instruct others, of all of these other things that we've already dealt with. Why? Because you've not grown in faith. You've not yet put into practice. You've not yet benefited from these testings that the Lord has put you in. Your faith has not blossomed and increased in the sense of of being somewhat of a model or being somewhat of someone to follow. And he says, love, compassion. All that James said, listen, there is this attitude of preeminence in a formal way. We need to be careful as teachers. It's a caution. It's a caution. Let not many of you become teachers. And James puts himself into that category. So there's this formal sense that we need to be careful about wanting to become a teacher in Christ's church. Now let's admit that there is, in our day, several hindrances to this caution. Right? And, and that is the increase of, lay, uh, of the idea that um, I, I think it's a demise of biblical doctrine of um, the fifth commandment, inferior, superiors, and equals. It's an it's a, 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 a unbiblical mindset that society is made up of equals, inferiors, and superiors. That's the way God designed it. And the fifth commandment addresses those categories. It talks about the role of superiors to inferiors. And the role of inferiors to superiors. And the role of equals to equals. And all of us share in those categories. We may be equal in some sense. And in another sense, there's a superior-inferior relationship. And that's, brothers and sisters, the reality of God's creation created order. No matter, no, no amount of college education and political deviance is ever going to erase that fact. There are men and women superior, inferior, and equals. That's the way it works. 
Let's all confess there are people better than we are. There are pastors better than myself, more knowledgeable, more holy, better, more consistent. And the same can be said for all of us. Husbands, wives, families, children, brothers, sisters, you name it. And it's right in every way to acknowledge those distinctions. Honorable men and women ought to be honored. Um, you know, equals ought to be treated as equals. Inferiors ought to be uh, dealt with with compassion and correction and all of those various things. And, and I'm not going to go into that whole teaching, but but again, verses like this mean nothing if that doesn't if that's not true. James says, "Be careful that." Many of you don't become superiors, teachers, in an official capacity. Now, he tells us why, right, at the end of the verse. He not only cautions the body of Christ not to have this attitude of preeminence over one another, but he says, listen, my brethren, notice who he's speaking to, the church. He says, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. The original idea there in the Greek is greater condemnation. I want to say, you know, one thing, so I've talked about the laity. That is, there's this movement that the church is all equal in every way. Not true. That idea will end up, is harmful and will end up being greatly harmful to the church in the future. As distinguish as distinctives are torn down. Um, cultural habits are also important, and we need to think about them. Social platforms are something we have to think about today. Why social platforms? Well, I, I'm not against social platforms. I'm not against Facebook. I think there's a place for it. I think there's a use for it. But we all know and we all recognize, or at least it seems to me we all recognize, when those things are abused or when those things are used in an ill way. Social platforms gives a platform to any and every teacher that wants to be, anybody that wants to be a teacher, anybody that has some superior idea that wants to pontificate to the world or their group or followers of their political views, uh, social ethics, religious ideas, or dislike, whatever the case may be. Everybody wants to be the teacher. And that is true for the liberals, conservatives, moderates, progressives. It doesn't matter. Everybody wants their platform. And we need to be careful about it. What James is not saying is that Christians don't have a mutual Social, community, responsibility to talk to one another, to aid one another, to advise one another. That's not what we're dealing with here. We're talking about the, the role of an official in an official capacity to be over others. James says, be careful. Be careful. And if the church won't let me do it, then I'll just use my social platform to preach my gospel, whatever that gospel is. 
Now, you need to be careful about that. Not listen to me. I want to be real clear. Most people, and I, I, I think it's accurate to say I'm not being mean-spirited here, are not worth listening to. We need, God has put in your life certain influences. Make use of those. He's given you the Bible. He's given you a Bible teacher. He's given you other teachers that I have recommended in your site and have taught you. I mean, we've watched videos as a church body, have we not? There's, a, there's sort of a list of, of what we would call what? Faithful teachers that we've all been introduced to. Use them. Be careful about the platforms out there. Some of the most dangerous error are that which is so subtle. So subtle. The church is being swept away in this wave called compassion by the progressive movement that I will tell you is not compassionate at all. It allows sin to remain sin, and it, and it condemns those who stand with Scripture. And you need to be careful about it. Let me go on and just express to you some of the mindset. I, you know, I think we ought to be cautious when someone wants to be a teacher so badly because they feel like they need to teach others. You know, they feel like they have the, 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 the glorious gift of light that they need to, they're so eager to bestow on others. Most of the teachers we see in the Bible come... come I don't want to say begrudgingly, that's not true, but the word that escapes me a little bit, but come reluctantly. Why do so many, why do so many teachers, we see prominent teachers in the Bible, why do they come cautiously? Because of what James says, the greater condemnation. God came to Moses. Moses said, no, me, not, not me, nor God said, yes, you. Not me, Lord. He gave the Lord many reasons why he should not be the one. And the last one, I think, being the, the most clever, Moses said, Lord, I am a man. I cannot speak well. I'm not your teacher. What do teachers need to do? They need to teach. They need to use words. What is the context of James? He talks about words, right? The tongue. It's all in this context. Moses says, Lord, not me. I'm all twisted up in the tongue. I, I, I get stuck. I, I, I don't know what to say. I got... Moses, I got you. Your brother's going to be your prophet. He's going to speak for you. You're my man. He came cautiously. Why do you think they called Jeremiah the weeping prophet? I'm just going to mention a few. Why do you think they called Jeremiah the weeping prophet? Well, <laughs> let's just get down to the brass tacks. Just because his life and ministry was hard. His ministry was a ministry of judgment in a, in a callous church. A callous, saturated, sinful church. God calls Jeremiah to be this prophet of gloom and doom. And Jeremiah doesn't want to do it. Jeremiah, you're not even going to take a wife because i got something. Your life's going to be hard. You're going to be thrown into prison. Your life. You, he spent 
decades preaching this judgment, and guess what? Now I have one convert. The weeping prophet. Does that sound like Jeremiah beating his chest, telling everybody, oh, I've got a wonderful message for you. In fact, God condemns in the book of Jeremiah chapter 14, He condemns those false prophets who come behind Jeremiah and says, peace, peace, peace. What's this nut preaching? He's preaching judgment, but we're here to tell you it's all economic prosperity. You've put us in the power and we are going to guarantee peace. Sound like, Politicians? Jeremiah preaches no peace. He preaches judgment. Who was God with? You see, brothers and sisters, I, Acts 9, turn there with me. That's a passage of Scripture we have used so many times in this church. But it is so enlightening to the ministry. Hmm. Look at chapter 9. I'm just picking out where I want to start reading. At verse 13. Now, as you look at the, those verses, just listen to me. I, I mean, there is a problem. There's a problem when, brothers and sisters, when we have the, this attitude of superiority, this attitude of preeminence, and we want to exercise it over to others. That's a problem. You don't find the prophets, the true prophets. You don't find God's teachers like that. They don't want them. They don't. They don't want to. They don't want that responsibility unless they're called to do it. They don't want it. It's not natural. Who, who, brothers and sisters, listen to me. A man who has his own burdens now has to carry your burdens. Is that what you want? But see, the mentality that James is addressing and dealing with are men that are not worried about their own burdens. They love telling others what to do. They don't care if they do it. They're not concerned whether or not they're guilty of hypocrisies. He's already dealt with that in chapter 1. He looks and studies into the Word of God, but he goes away, he forgets what he reads, but he's so quick to tell others how to live. So quick to express to others how they should raise their children what their daughter should wear, what their daughter should look like, what their sons should be doing, what their wives should be doing. They love telling others what to do and they don't do it themselves. Now that doesn't mean we should not want to be told what to do or advised. Hopefully we are not opposed to advice, direction, Instruction. If we are, then, well, probably not even a Christian. But look at what Paul said, or what the Holy Spirit prompted Luke to write about Paul. And look at verse uh, 13. It says, But then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man being Paul, how much harm he did to 
your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief, chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now that's Paul's calling. That's Paul's charge from the Lord. He's going to be a suffering apostle. All the apostles suffered. All the apostles, all the New Testament apostles, guess what? Died. Suffered for the sake of Christ. These were not men, you know. Now they were guilty of warning preeminence, Lord, who shall sit to the right and to the left of you? Who's going to have this grand position of authority with you, Jesus? And he rebuked them for it. And, he's, and this is what James has given us caution of here. James is letting us know, listen, there, it, there should not be. Be careful. Be so careful. And that, it doesn't mean that we are not to recognize ability to instruct or teach or any of those things. But it's the attitude of preeminence. The attitude that we have what everybody else should want. <laughs> they just don't know it. So I have to convince them of it. James is convincing us that um, this is a problem. Well, it's a problem in Jesus' day as well, wasn't it? Didn't Jesus have all of these confrontations with these Jewish doctors and lawyers who thought they knew better, who, knew, who thought that they knew how everybody else should live? Remember Jesus and the apostles walking through the grain fields? Jesus, how come your disciples don't fast? On the Sabbath day. Why are they doing eating this wheat? Shouldn't they be keeping our traditions? And I'm not going to go into it. I'm just giving you the scenarios here. They were all about wanting others to conform to these rules that they had made up in their own heads. You know, you have a picture of how we ought to do certain things. And if everybody doesn't do it that way, then this, mor this moral law that's been created in someone's head becomes the, the blanket by which everybody else is judged by. Jesus condemns that. James is condemning that. He's warning us of it. Be careful of these things because you will be judged with a stricter judgment. Matthew chapter 23 Matthew chapter 23, I'll point out where Jesus makes this staggering comment about the mentality of these Jewish doctors and teachers, all these men that wanted to be preeminent over others. Verse 13 of chapter 3 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Jesus called them, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. How do they shut off the kingdom of heaven? Because they don't teach God's revelation. They teach tradition of men. They teach their own moral laws. They teach the things that they like. The things that they adore. They don't teach the precious Word of God as its truth. So what do you do when you don't teach the truth? You shut off the kingdom from others. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 14. Hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses 
And for a pretense, you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Notice how they use their tongues to receive the greater condemnation. Long, pretentious prayers that I'm sure are filled with all the right words. That I'm sure actually says all the right things. But let me ask you this. You think their hearts were in it? No. All those long prayers did was bring stricter judgment on the teacher. Yet they, what did they want? They wanted the preeminence of men. Woe to you, verse 15, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel around the sea and land and to make one proselyte convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much as the son of hell as yourselves. See, they're not winning people to God. They're not winning converts to God. They're winning converts to themselves. Men love followers. Women love followers. There's a lot of men and women teachers, you know what? They're more concerned about their Twitter accounts and uh, Instagram accounts, how many followers they have. In fact, the world's like, hey, so-and-so's got one million followers. Right? I mean, social platforms become very important. Businesses are taking great notice of these things. So-and-so's got two million followers. We want to hear what he has to say. Well, God didn't work that way. God didn't care how many followers you have on Instagram. God didn't care how many tweets promotes you or not. He doesn't care. In fact, great caution. The more followers you have, the greater your condemnation will be if you're error. The more followers you have, the more people you lead astray with your error. Verse 15, we're going to move on. Verse 16, I'm sorry. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. Whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it is obligated. You blind men, which is more important? The offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and by everything on it. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. And you neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy, without neglect... uh, uh, mercy and faithfulness, but these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. I'm just not going to stop. I mean, you can see there, Jesus is condemning the teachers of his day. And they they are going to be the recipients of stricter judgment. There's testimonies I could go into various men. John Knox comes to mind. Church comes to John Knox, and he was a faithful figure, faithful man, and they said, we think you ought to preach the gospel. We think you ought, God's calling you to the ministry. What does he do? Throw a party? Oh, he cries for three days. He cries. Woe is me. Why? Well, look at the time he lived in. Such dangerous times to preach the gospel. Such unpopular times, hard times. Look what you're putting your family in. Woe is me. Now, you can't neglect the call. God puts his hand on you. God puts his finger on you. What's he expect you to do? 
come. What does He expect the church to do when, when God's men are really called to that office and they demonstrate this humility, sincerity, and the gifts for the office? What should you do? Rally behind them. Just as this is a great caution for, for those who may want to be a teacher or for those who have this mentality or idea that they are the God's gift at the church themselves and they ought to tell everybody else what to do, men and women alike. Listen, brothers and sisters, let's be quite honest. I've met plenty of, of men and women who love nothing more than to tell others what to do. It's not a gender-specific problem. It's a problem with both genders. Both men and women love to have preeminence over others. This is a caution. Secondly, it's the informal. This is what John Calvin focused on. John Calvin focused on this idea that, well, it's not just the teachers. Be careful of the self-proclaimed righteousness. You know, John Calvin saw that it's not just a problem of the formal offices of the church. Men love the office because of its glory, because of, you know, all the things that come along with it and shunning all the harsh things, but certainly giving oneself over to all the glamorous and easy aspects of it because of laziness. Some men are called to love because of the pastorate because they're lazy. John Calvin points out, he said, but there's also this informal issue and problem, and that is this the church member, it's the brother or sister that, well, is the self-called one to tell everybody else what to do among the body. It's a problem. They too will not escape God's judgment. If, you, if we go back over to Matthew chapter 7, this will be the last part I want to spend here. Because I think it should be somewhat clear now to us all. If, if the uh, Sermon on the Mount is the Lord Jesus Christ sitting with His disciples and He is instructing them, which is what the beginning of the book says, the beginning of the sermon says, then He can be directing the disciples themselves. In verse 1 of chapter 7, Do not judge so that... <clears throat> You will not be judged, for in the same way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. I'm going to stop there and I'll finish in just a second. What Calvin says, it's not just a problem. I mean, if you take teachers and you take those who are called to office formally, be careful with what standard you teach and, and judge people by. Because that's the standard meted out. If you're going to be, if you're not going to be merciful and compassionate and truthful, eh, guess what? It's not that God's going to be untruthful in dealing with you. It's just that you're going to be judged severely for it. Your judgment will be without compassion. It'll be a measure of, of strict justice. Okay? God's not going to be unjust, but God can be merciful. God can be kind. He can be patient. Okay. Notice what he goes on to say, though. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own eye? See, that's the problem. It's this self-righteousness. And that's exactly what James is addressing in the book. 
James is addressing this, this true religion and Christ's righteousness that belongs to the true believer and how that righteousness produces humility and all of these other graces, love, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. All of these things over against self-righteousness, which produces none of those things. Self-righteousness does nothing but promote self, selfishness, and pride. But yet, it's the idea that they do not see their own problem. Study the Word of God. Why do we study the Word of God? Because I need to teach you how to live. Not me. You. And I believe that's exactly what Richard Baxter said. There's going to be many, many pastors wake up in hell one day. What a warning. Paul writes and tells Timothy in those epistles, he says, Timothy, preach and study the Word of God in such a way that saves the congregation and yourself. I believe James is addressing and dealing with this informal, informally because of the tendency to hypocrisy and self-righteousness that we can have. Notice what the text goes on to say. Let's look at the context because James includes himself in this, doesn't he? When he talks about we, he says we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, the idea here is that we need to be so careful of what we teach, how we teach it, and how it's carried out because we are going to be judged accordingly. Just as those who receive the teaching will be judged accordingly. How did you receive it? What did you do with it? Did you scoff at it? Did you laugh at it? I mean, listen, if you're talking about truth and the, the dispensing and the, the, the giving out of truth, then there's a moral obligation in the way it's presented and there's a moral obligation how it is received and what's done with it. James goes on, though, very clearly and says right there in verse 2, he says, For we... We, I'm a teacher, James says, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. And I believe this is also James addressing this concept of teacher, of instruction. James is, what does teachers do? Teachers talk all the time. Teachers talk a lot. Hey, parents talk a lot. Bosses talk a lot. Truth has to be conveyed. Instruction has to be conveyed. All of these things. I mean, let me, I want to give you young people a warning. Be careful. Satan does not trick you with self-righteousness or with your parents. Yeah, but you said this. You're contradicting yourself. You're a hypocrite. Satan loves insubordination. And you know what? Yeah, parents do contradict themselves. But that doesn't mean they're consciously hypocritical. We talk a lot. Parents have a lot of things to say. They have a lot of instructions to, to give. And you know why parents do it? By and large, because they love you. They care for you. They want nothing more than your health and well-being. Nothing more than your prosperity in the future. 
Very, very few godly parents want to put the thumb screws on their children. They want you to blossom and mature and become godly and beneficial to the church and God and His kingdom and all of these things. They want you to grow up to be mature, loving, caring, compassionate boys, men, and girls and women. And yes, parents say things that contradict themselves, but it's not purposely. Unless sometimes we convince we're wrong and we change our minds. Guess what? We're out. We can change our minds. Just like pastors can change their mind, elders can change their mind, deacons can be informed, and, and all these things can change their minds. I want to warn you don't be so quick to point out the hypocrisy or inconsistency of your parents to promote yourself as if somehow. You're never that way. Please don't. Because Satan loves to bolster your self-righteousness and pride. All right, let's move on. James acknowledges that all men stumble in many ways. We stumble in many ways. James here is making and connecting. This is not just random verses that he's tying together here. I believe this is all connected to what James calls true religion. He's addressing self-righteousness and the damage and the harm of self-righteousness as opposed to Christ's righteousness or true faith and true religion and humility. Because James here expresses humility. We all stumble in many ways. And I... If anyone does not stumble in what he says, guess what? He's a perfect man. When, what we need to do, let me change the wording there. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man, a sanctified man, a perfected man, someone who's learned to discipline his tongue, someone who's learned to... Listen, what James is saying here, he's like, look, the man and the woman who has the discipline to discipline their language and discipline their tongue is a very mature Christian. He says it says that he is a perfect man, able, notice, able to bridle the whole body. I've loved the correlation here. What James is saying is, listen, if you're mature enough to discipline yourself and to discipline your speech, guess what? That discipline flows into all areas of life. You're a mature man. You discipline your whole body. That's what he's saying. That the maturity can be seen, sort of the epitome of maturity for the believer is what? Seeing how they govern their tongue. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me. We need to be so careful about the things we say. The Lord Jesus said man will be judged by every word that comes out of his mouth. But we also need to be careful about the things we don't say. Because there are things that need to be said. There are things that need to be said. There are corrections to make. There are teachings to be taught. There are errors to be corrected. And one of the major issues in our own day and time is the silence of the church to many cultural Problems that are becoming normal. Sin, brothers and sisters, can never 
be normalized by the church and never be winked at and accepted as normal ever. No matter how saturated, embedded it becomes culturally, the church can never normalize it. And that's the pressure, isn't it? That's the avalanche. That's the tidal wave flowing against us. It's to normalize deviant behavior and to accept it. But we must not only teach the truth, say the truth, speak the truth in love, but we must also speak against sin and do it in a way that's honoring the Christ and God and in a way that's clear to those who are in error. James talks about the discipline and the maturity that one has to discipline one's tongue. Now, I want you to recognize this. He says this, this idea. Notice he gives an example. He loves the couplets and he loves this, the, the horses and the ships and the fountain and the vine. He loves show, throwing these illustrations in there to help us. Notice what he says. He says, we put bits in the horse's mouth so that they'll obey us and direct their entire body. Ships are directed and guided by the small rudder, so the tongue directs, or the tongue being a small part of the body, yet it boasts great things. Proverbs has a lot to say about the blessing and cursing of what? The tongue. I want to give you just a couple of things to think about. We're going to close. We're not going to go any further tonight. Kindness is powerful. Kind words are powerful. A smile is powerful. So are frowns. We shouldn't smile at everything. We should frown at some things. We need to learn to smile when we need to smile. And we need to frown when we need to frown. We need to be willing to say a kind word when a kind word is needed and to mean it and we need to be able to say a corrective word when there needs to be a corrective word when it's needed the bible's full of the full of these things in fact uh, paul even talks about and and out of the proverbs how a, a kind answer turns away harsh words that when we are attacked, that when we are, when we are the recipients of, of harsh judgment and criticism, a meek, accurate, truthful reply often curtails it. Instead of the self-righteous response is, how dare you speak to me this way, put up your dupes, let's go at it. Controlling the situation by the things we say, the things we believe, and the things that are true. True, mind you. Don't get caught up in this fantasy world that's going on around us. The caught up that this fantasy, our culture is promoting fantasy. And is expecting everyone to jump in and live in the fantasy. It is an abomination in God's sight for us to get involved in these deviant fantasies. 
It is against the honor of our God to accept lies as truth. Good is evil. And evil is good. We must be so careful to honor God first, love of the brethren as God would call us and have us to, and suffer, well, suffer if need be. Are you better than the Apostle Paul? When the Lord Jesus said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Are you better than Jeremiah? Am I better than Jeremiah? Not better than Paul. I'm better than Apostle Peter. I mean, are we better than all the thousands and millions of saints that have gone and suffered for the truth? Why do we think we're special? Why do we think we don't somehow, none of those rules apply to us, that somehow we ought to be really loving and compassionate and give in to the cultural norms? Why do we think that's okay? So many Christians do. But we should not. Be careful about wanting to be preeminent over others. Be careful, brothers and sisters, in thinking that your ways are the ways that everybody else should live. It's God's way. It's God's rules. It's God's law. It's Christ's righteousness. He's, he's shown us the way we must go. And guess what we should do with one another? I want to encourage you to walk in God's ways. I want to encourage you to walk in the ways of the Lord. I want to encourage you to be faithful to the Lord first and foremost. You see, brothers and sisters, this ministry is Christ's ministry. We're called to Him. And we're called to be faithful to Him. That's the calling we all have. That's the calling that I have to live up to and you. Let's take these warning. This warning is being serious. Let's examine ourselves this day and let's find out, are we content to follow the path of the Lord? If not, why not? Why not? How do we use our tongues? How do we use them? We're going to look at that more next week. Let's pray.